With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome back to Inside the Tour with Nina Pantic. That's me. And Irina Falcone, that's me. We're currently going to have a guest, special guest, Gordon Reed. He is a wheelchair tennis champion. I got the chance to talk to him at the U.S. Open this year, where he ended up winning the uh, men's doubles title. And he is has been ranked as high as number one in singles and doubles. He's won a gold medal at the Paralympic Games 2016. He's won two slams, including the first ever singles Wimbledon wheelchair champion and the Australian Open. Um, he's won nine doubles Grand Slams, including the U.S. Open, which is when I talked to him. He's going to talk about some of the misconceptions about wheelchair tennis, some of the basics, some of the fun facts, some of his personal fun facts. We were in an interview room, which is awesome, but it's in Arthur Ashe Stadium, so you can hear Juan Martin Del Potro taking on Rafa Nadal, and then Nadal retires, and the crowd goes crazy for a while. And you might hear a little bit of you know, crowd noise, ambiance, I'm sorry, but I'm keeping the parts of the interview because it's a great interview and he deserves to be heard in full, so just deal with it. Here's Gordon Reed. All right, so I'm joined by Gordon Reed, wheelchair tennis, and I want to talk about some different things just because a lot of people don't know a lot about it. So thanks for joining me and us. <laughs> no worries. Um, I just want to start with, is there any big misconceptions you hear a lot when people think about wheelchair tennis? Yeah, I think there's still a lot of misconceptions. Um, a lot of people think that we just do it as a hobby. Um, we're actually most of the top players, quite all the top players now are, are full-time professional athletes. They think that we play on a smaller court, which we don't play in the same size court. I think we use a different scoring system, which we don't use the same scoring system. Um, the only difference in the rule is that we get two bounces, and the first one has to be inside the court, and the second one can be anywhere. Is this something you do full-time, like full living, everything? Yeah, yeah, professional athletes or. Training, same schedule as any of the other guys here in the, the other events. And then the gear, is there certain rules and, and like things you can't break in terms of like the wheelchair and you're using the same rackets, obviously, but is there, is there rules? There's rules uh, There's rules around the, the wheelchair. Um, so there's, there's a certain height that you have to be at, I think, and you can't have anything mechanical, so you can't have like an engine with a chair and like that. Okay. Well, that would be easier to get around the court. Um, but to be honest, in, in our sport, it's, it's quite it's quite relaxed. Um, there's there's a couple of players in the division who have totally different wheelchairs, carbon fiber, and sitting more of a, a kneeling position. The, the main rule is that you have to have one of your buttocks touching the seat at all times when you hit the shot. Okay, I didn't know so that. So it means you can't like stand out of the chair because there's okay. some guys who maybe are amputees who have full use of one of the legs. So if they wanted to, they didn't have straps. They could kind of lift out the chair and reach the ball easier. So that's one of the rules as well. Okay. So the umpire's yeah. watching for that, I guess? Umpire's always watching their backsides, yeah. <laughs> and then the clothing sponsors, like are you're, you and Federer now sharing a clothing sponsor? I mean, that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I got there first. You were, so you were first. Roger followed, obviously trend setting. 
And when you first when you first started playing, did you did you think like I'm gonna go pro in this? I mean, I know you started at, at 13 or 14 or so. Like, was the Grand Slams and all that? I mean, a feasible career path, or did it just kind of progress? Yeah, it just progressed. Um, when I started playing the sport, and before I started playing the sport, I didn't even know it existed because I used to be a, a tennis player on my feet, and I had a condition in my spine when I was 12 that uh, like I'd, I'd start using the wheelchair after that. So I didn't even know that it existed. And then when I first started playing, I had no idea. That was even in the, in the Grand Slams. I was just playing to get active and, and get healthy and you know be back involved in the sport that I loved. Um, and it was only after time went on and I kind of improved. And around the time I was leaving school was around the time that I started going full time, and uh, that's when sort of dreams of playing the, the Grand Slams and things like that became more realistic. So you started off playing regular, and then you had to switch to the wheelchair style. How hard yeah. is it though? Like even. Like the way you hit the backhands is so different. Yeah. That must have been impossible. Like to learn all that. Is there like a coach you'd work with? Is there? Yeah, it was, it was really difficult because I used to play with a double hander on my feet, mm-hmm. which obviously you can't do in a wheelchair because when you you know if you took back with both hands, you just have no momentum in the swing when you when you go to to strike the ball. Um. So that was the hardest shot for me to learn because forehand's the same, the serves similar, you're just sitting a bit lower. Um. But yeah, the backhand, you know, was one of the shots that. I had to put in a lot of time to learn. But really the, the hardest thing to, to learn and to master is the movement around the court because it's so different from playing on your feet. You can't just take a, one step out of the way right at the last minute. Yeah. Um, as soon as you take your hands off to prepare for the shot and you're rolling towards the ball, you can't change it after that. So you have to time it perfectly. Um, and also you want to try and stay moving all the time because that first movement, the first push is always the slowest one. So you want to try and keep that momentum on the court as much as you can. It looks impossible. It's not impossible. Like, truly. It's I, not impossible. It's especially, just hard. <laughs> especially doubles. It just seemed like there was so much communication and, and so many like U-turns. I feel like, do you get dizzy? I don't know. It just seems like a lot of turning. and. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, doubles is probably the, the best to watch because the, the rallies are longer. It's almost the opposite of, of players that are running tennis. Um, their singles are shorter and doubles points are longer. But that's why, yeah, communication is such an important part of, of wheelchair doubles because... We're not always facing the court, like you know, guys on their feet, they'll always be facing forward, they always know where their partner is, whereas we are sometimes got our back to the court because we're turning and, and things like that, so to make sure that you both know where you are on the court and you know who's covering what, that's yeah, that's why communication is so important. There's a bit of camaraderie as well, I noticed when you guys started off, you all kind of clapped hands and shook hands, it's a small tour, right? There's not, there's not big draws, you kind of all go to the same tournaments, you all know each other, you play doubles together, it seems very, very close. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's changing a lot and... There's a lot of players playing, but the top seven or eight guys that always play the Grand Slams have stayed pretty similar over the last two or three years. So there's a lot of sportsmanship there. I think there's a lot of respect from each other. And, um, yeah, like you say, we, we play together, you know, against each other and together all year round. So um, yeah, I think you know, that's that's always going to be there. That camaraderie. Is the reason the draws aren't bigger at Slams? It's pretty small. It's a good question. <laughs> I think um, I think originally you know you have to start somewhere. Um, and there weren't so many players playing and there weren't so many players dedicating themselves to the sport so the level of the sport was, was lower uh, maybe when I started whereas now we're in a situation where there's a lot more depth in, in the sport um, there's a lot more players that are professional and playing full time and I think for me and for a lot of the other players that's sort of the, the next step forward uh, for wheelchair tennis at the, the slams is to hopefully increase the draw sizes. Do you think that things have progressed a lot? Because I feel like it's definitely a bit more, people are more aware of it, um, for sure. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I mean, we've had some good crowds out there today, um, whereas 
the first couple of slams I played, you know, you were lucky. You had your coaches and and man and his dog and then the crowd. So um, I think the awareness is is much better now. I think the slams have, um, you know, started to commit more to wheelchair tennis, and you can just see with the scheduling here. There's been a lot of wheelchair matches on Armstrong. We were scheduled to, to play on Ash yesterday. Unfortunately, the heat stopped that, but you know that's something which even four or five years ago you'd never dream of being on the show courts, and now it's becoming a regular occurrence. I've seen it just progress, and, and people notice more. And I mean, even are you recognisable in Scotland and England, and, and and in your country? Are you famous, or is it just anywhere? Um, some sometimes, <laughs> sometimes people recognise you because you're quite uh, you're not very inconspicuous in, in a chair and stuff. But um, yeah, I think you know as you get a lot of recognition from maybe on TV and Wimbledon and BBC back home have done a great job of um, showcasing wheelchair tennis on you know, national television. I think the last three, two or three years there's been finals live on, on national TV. So for us, you know, that's one of the biggest the biggest things, the biggest uh, step forward because that's when not only do you get the publicity but that's when you get you know, the commercial side of sponsors and things more interested because you're playing in front of you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people on TV, then they're much more likely to want a patch on your shirt or something like that. And the British press gets a lot of flack sometimes for being, you know, crazy and aggressive and mean or something, but I think in this case it's more supportive because they're they're really interested and they're following you. We're the lucky ones at the moment. We're, they're not too harsh on us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I say, every year it's getting better and better. Um, even, you know, Wimbledon this year, um, there's a press sort of call before the tournament starts. And... Again, three, four years ago, five years ago, when I played at Wimbledon, nobody was interested in talking to you. And then a few years on, you're there with you know, a whole balcony full of journalists and TV that want to that speak to you and get your thoughts. So for me, that's a sign of you know, things going in the right direction. Hopefully, it can keep improving. Certainly, certainly. And having and having a certain number of stars, same in like regular tennis, like having the Federer and the Dolls, like that brings up the popularity right away. So, I mean, it makes the transition perfectly. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that the public and the tennis fans love is learning about the characters and the people themselves and uh, not just the tennis player but the person behind that as well. And I think that's something which a lot of the media and the Grand Slams are starting to do better. And if people recognise names and faces then they're more likely to have an invested interest in that match. So um, yeah, hopefully that keeps improving as well. I can see that definitely growing. And, and uh, Wimbledon you mentioned a few times, so you were the first ever singles wheelchair champion, men's champion. Why did it begin in 2016? And you won, that's yeah. convenient. <laughs> <laughs> it was just because I think they always had a doubles event at Wimbledon, yeah. I think since 2005 or something like that. Um, and the reason for that was the surface. Mm-hmm. Grass is a lot tougher for us to move on um, just because of the thickness of, of the grass and the resistance that it kind of gives you underneath the tyres. So I think there was always a bit of a worry that, you know, A, it wouldn't look that good and B, physically, players would struggle. And I think um, kind of Enlightened with everything else I've been saying about more players being fitter and stronger and dedicating more time to it, I think they realised that you know 2016 was the right time to include the singles and the players were ready for it and yeah, thankfully it was good timing for me as well to win the first one. You're the first one. That's history, historic. Yeah, big, yeah, right? yeah. It's it's one of those things that I think you know right now it might it means a lot obviously, but I think maybe in the future it's something which. You know, you see the score, uh, the sort of champions boards here, and at Wimbledon and all the slams, and you know, my name's gonna be at the top of that one forever. So it's pretty, it's pretty special. And one of the biggest misconceptions people that think that's not a full-time job, but for you it is. And like, what goes into the daily day? I mean, are, are you training 
couple hours a day and the fit, physical fitness and all stuff. Um, is it every day? The same as an able-bodied pro? Yeah. Um, well, for me, it's either five or six days a week, depending on uh, what, what part of the schedule and what part of the year it is, um, whether we're in more of a training block or in more of a sort of ticking over phase in between events. Um, and it'll either be a combination of uh, on-court sessions and, like you say, a lot, a lot of physical work because there's a lot of demand on the upper body to boost your tennis because you know, not only are we putting the shots, but we're generating all the movement with our upper body and our arms and our chest and our backs as well. So it's really important to stay strong and uh, you know injury-free. So there's a lot of work off court that goes into that. And then I play wheelchair basketball as well on the side um, for a bit of fun, but also it's you know really really tough on the body. It's uh, great for fitness and the mobility in the chair. So. In this case, it's good to have different hobbies and sports because it helps you. Sometimes people that play tennis don't want to play other sports. They want to focus only on one, but in this case, you're saying it helps you. Yeah, I think for me, um, as a wheelchair athlete, it can be quite difficult, especially on a tennis court, to find that sort of real, real tough physical uh, side of it because um, there's a lot of stop-start and it's hard to get the heart rate up and things like that. So basketball is great for that because it's just end-to-end, constant sprinting and I can't shoot, so I just push really hard and try and be fast because that's my only asset that I've got in the basketball court. Definitely never seen the wheelchair basketball game, um, at least at least live. But I feel like watching watching the tennis game live, it just I don't think you get the sense of it on TV as you do when you're there, yeah. just because of how much is going into it, like just the constant movement, the whole thing. I think it's the same, you know, even when you watch, uh, you know, Rafa or Roger or anybody on on center court. When you're there courtside, the ball moves, so it seems to move so much faster than it does when you watch it on TV from the, the camera angle. And it's the same with us, I think, you know, it's, it looks much quicker in person. Uh, it's more exciting, obviously, being, being courtside, so that's why we always try and, um, you know, tease people into coming to, to watch us live and, and coming and seeing it for, them, for their own eyes and, and seeing how quick and um, sort of exciting the sport is. Is there something else that you do? Are there any hobbies and things that people don't know about you that, that you want to share? Of, of maybe <laughs> non-tennis hobbies? You said basketball, that's a pretty big one. Yeah, yeah, well... I'm a big uh, sports fan in general, big football fan, soccer over here. So I'm a big Rangers fan, Glasgow Rangers. Um, so to be honest, um, when I get any free time at home, I try and go along and watch them. Um, I love the team. Um, an interesting fact about me, which is a quite good one, which happened in 2016, is there's a safari park in Scotland, which is not too far away from where I live. And the lion there had four lion cubs. And they named one of them Murray after Andy Murray because he won Wimbledon the weekend they were born. And they ran a competition to decide what the other three should be called. And they named one of them Reed after me because I also won Wimbledon that weekend. So there's a little lion cub in, um, in Scotland that's, that's named Reed after me and Murray. It's his little brother um, named after Andy. So it's quite a, a fun fact. That that's pretty cool. <laughs> Why not? And then though I noticed which chairs. Is it because one is more athletic and one is more for like normal um, getting around? Yeah, so I mean there's You don't want to wear is that why? No, no, there's quite a few differences between uh, what we call the everyday chair, which I'm sitting in now, and the, the tennis chair that we use on court. Um, you can see the, the wheels in the tennis chair are at more of a camber, more of an angle, and that's to help spin in the spot and to turn quicker. Obviously, you wouldn't be able to have that in, in this chair because you wouldn't be able to get through any doorways mm-hmm. anywhere in life. So, um, that's one of the differences. Um, we have an extra wheel at the back of the chair, a tennis chair as well. It's called the anti-tip, so that when you lean back for a smash or a serve, you can lean back as, as far as you want, and that wheel is going to stop you from basically tipping it backwards. Um, and then, in a day chair like this, you're not strapped in. You're just sitting in it. And in a tennis chair, you want to be strapped in as tight as possible because if you have any movement. 
if you have any control of your hips or some control in any leg muscles, you can actually use that to maneuver the chair. Mm -hmm. uh, you can sort of flick your hips around to, to turn the chair because it's so light and it's so reactive to, to any little adjustments. Um, maybe you want to try and rotate through a shot more with your arms off the chair. You can actually use your hips to do that. So that's one of the reasons why we're strapped in tight. There's there's different divisions. So there's the quad division, yeah. um, which is also at slams. Um, so there's men's open, women's open and quads. And to, cl to classify yourself into the quad division, um, you're classified by you know, an international uh, classifier who's normally a physio. And they do tests on your arms and your uh, trunk. And if you're under a certain level of um, control, if you have some weakness in your arms or weakness in your trunk, then you qualify for uh, to play as a quad. You can actually see some of the guys here tape their racket to their mm -hmm. hands because they don't have that grip to, to actually hold onto a racket. Um, so that's the only real differential between uh, disabilities and then if you're above that quad level everybody plays against everybody so okay. for me I, I see it as um, different heights okay. it's the same as that it's, it's kind of your luck of the draw if you're five foot six or six foot four yeah. so it's the same with your disability you're lucky or not because I've seen your Instagram so there's somewhere you're standing so I'm like well it, it's different everyone's different yeah everyone's different yeah. so yeah, that, that's probably another big misconception is if you're a wheelchair athlete you're in a wheelchair all the time, all parts of your life. Um, whereas there's some guys, you know, there's amputees here that um, never use a, an everyday chair, only use a chair for tennis because they can't run around with, uh, with the prosthetic. And there's guys like me who need a chair quite a lot, but also can stand and walk a little bit. And then there's some guys that you know have no feeling in their legs and, and no movement at all. So it's kind of all ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then then access accessibility stuff. When you're traveling around the world, yeah. is there a lot of hurdles in different countries? I mean, I think the U.S. is, is, is okay, but I noticed um, there was a reporter coming here yesterday, and she was in a wheelchair, and they couldn't get her into the bus because the, the lift wasn't working, and she was, she was pissed, rightfully so. But stuff like that just seems like things you don't think about, like how these athletes are getting to the site, getting around the sites, getting on buses and, and planes and everything. It's just kind of a, an ordeal, or is some countries better than others, and... Some experiences better than others. Yeah, I mean, some countries are better than others. Um, we play in some more developed countries that are obviously normally better. And then, you know, we traveled all over the world to, to other countries that are more developing. And a lot of times there's, you know, more, more challenges there, not just for athletes, for, but for disabled people in general and kind of society and life. Um, so that's, it's been quite eye-opening and um, quite interesting being able to have that experience of traveling around and, seeing what other people uh, you know, have to, to cope with, whereas actually from being from the UK and you know, spending time in America and stuff like that, kind of take it for granted a little bit that it's quite easy to, to get around. But you know, the big, one of the biggest challenges is, is when we're flying. Um, the airlines don't always take great, chair, uh, great, great care of our chairs, and um, you know, there's been a lot of times where we've been left stranded in airports and things like that. So that's probably the... Yeah, the hardest part yeah. yeah it's just things that people don't think about at all yeah. um, and then lastly so like prize money is a big thing at the US Open everybody talks about like oh my god all these millions of dollars at, like do you make enough prize money or is it endorsements or is it kind of a combination of things that you can play fully yeah so it used to be when I was younger I used to rely on funding a lot and again being from the UK I was lucky that we had a really good setup and a structure there that um, you know, the players were funded really well, um, and then as the years have gone on, I've you know 
climbed the rankings and started winning bigger events. The Grand Slams have improved the prize money a lot. Um, Wimbledon's been a big Wimbledon and Roland Garros have been the main uh, main ones pushing the the prize money forward. Yeah, and then with a bit more success and a bit more publicity, you know, a few commercial endorsements came. But to be honest, the majority of wheelchair players, even they're here, but they don't have big endorsement deals. Um, so yeah, a lot of players still rely on the prize money and um, and the funding. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know how accessible the US Open prize money is for the wheelchair yeah. guys for, for the public to find it. It's nowhere. Because um, yeah, it's it's pretty much nowhere. And I think that's because they're probably the lowest slam for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you see Wimbledon. And Roland Garros, they do big announcements, big press conferences. Also, they're different. Yeah, so so Roland Garros and and Wimbledon will do a big announcement, a big press conference because they're really proud of how much money they're you know putting into the sport, and um, you know that obviously gives us a great feeling as players because it shows that you're valued by them. And then when you come to the U.S. Open, that's probably one of the shortfalls here is uh, the prize money list for the wheelchair athletes is is kind of hidden away and, and never really talked about because. Probably the lowest of the four slams, mm-hmm. which yeah. isn't which isn't the usual thing for the US Open. That's surprising. That's very surprising. But it could change. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. Given given how things are going, it could easily change. Hopefully, they can catch up with Wimbledon and Roland Garros. Yeah, hopefully. I think. I mean, I I'm I'm really impressed overall, and I feel really ignorant as well because I just didn't know a lot. Um, but hopefully, with with more media and more podcasts, um, things will improve. And I really appreciate your time. I've taken a lot of it. But yeah, thank you. No problem. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I think one of the things people always think about when you watch wheelchair tennis is, wow, like they're so incredible athletes. I don't know how they're doing this. I couldn't do this. And you also think, hey, how'd they get in the chair? I mean, it's a kind of a natural, I think, human reaction to be like, what happened? Um, in the case of Gordon Reed, he actually contracted something called transverse myelitis, which ended up affecting his spinal cord um, suddenly when he was kind of, I think he was a junior player. But with every athlete, they have a story. And as long as you kind of go about these things, I think, with a bunch of respect and respect for the athlete and and where they come from, it's part of their story. So it's not offensive, I think, to ask and talk about it. Um, But in his case, yes, it was transverse myelitis, a rare neurological condition of the spinal cord. And I kind of feel like the most interesting part of this conversation for me was how ignorant I felt. Even though I've watched tennis my entire life, I've probably only watched one wheelchair tennis match, and half of that would have been his doubles match at the U.S. Open. Irina, like, do you kind of relate? Do you understand what I'm saying here? I can totally relate to that. Um, There were a few times when I was listening to Gordon, um, and I honestly had no idea of any of the, you know, requirements, any of the kind of rules that were happening. I mean, there was one part where you were talking to him and you actually saw his Instagram account where he actually walks. And that's number one misconception. You can walk and also play wheelchair tennis, which hopefully I don't offend anyone, but that is just something not a lot of people know. But exactly. You're like, I don't want to offend anyone. That's how I felt the entire time. I'm like, I don't want to offend anyone, but I just feel so ignorant about this whole thing. And the fact that I was stalking his Instagram and noticed that he can stand threw me off because I I wrongfully assumed that every wheelchair athlete is in a wheelchair all the time. And then with him, he explains the difference. He's like, okay, well, some people have more of a disability than others. It's the same as if like you're six foot six Del Potro versus Diego Schwartzman, who's five foot eight. 
It's kind of just having a height advantage is how he explains it, which made sense. There's a player right now that is training at the USTA Lake Nona um, Tennis Center, Mackenzie Solden. And she's actually an American basketball player who is also a wheelchair tennis player. And uh, she represented the U.S. at the 2011 Parapan American Games, and she won two gold medals. She won. Um, she also went to the 2012 London Paralympics, 2016 Rio Paralympics, and wheelchair basketball. So she is just all over the place. That is someone who you um, can really call an athlete. And um, it's funny, every time I see her, you know, she's working out, she's grinding. It seems more common to play two events as well, because Gordon also plays basketball. But you see, the funny thing is like, okay, so I watched Mackenzie, like the way she was playing, they totally have different techniques than we do. So what they do is they only use one hand on the backhand too. They use both hands to like navigate sometimes or sometimes just the left hand. But they, they also hit the ball, like they hit this backhand underhand thing, right? Because they're hitting a normal forehand and then they do like a spinning around backhand underhand shot. Literally what Nick Carriers would do as a trick shot is what they're doing like on every shot. In doubles, a lot of it was strategy. Like they would like rush the net at certain points, communicate so much. There's like a whole mountain of strategy involved beyond just being able to hit these crazy shots. And in, in tennis though, I know that the only different rule is the ball can bounce twice but the first bounce has to be within the like the regular lines. And then other than that, it's kind of just anything goes. They can't touch the net. You know, all the all the basic rules are the exact same. They, it's kind of exact same situation, but the there's some quirks in the sense that I think doubles, and he, he says it as well, Gordon says it as well, doubles is actually more fun to watch because the points are longer. The part that I found insane is that they're constantly moving. Like they're constantly, well, you, you have to watch it live. Like I, I couldn't stress that more because if you're not watching it live, you don't understand what they're doing. They're turning all the time, moving all the time. I don't even know how you would begin to pick up this sport. Like, it just seems insane to me. And another misconception is that these pros aren't making a living. They're actually just like, oh, they're casually playing basketball. Oh, they're casually playing tennis. Like, these guys are committed. They're full on, like, trying to be Roger Federer's of the sport here. And, you know, actually, Gordon's sponsored by Uniqlo, so he's kind of on his way. <laughs> is, uh, here's another question for you. Other than the four Grand Slams, do they have a lot of other events that they can play? Yeah, they do. Like, Goran's played a few events at the U.S. Open. He played tournament, the French Riviera Open. He won that one. He went and played the Sardinia Open in Italy. He got to the finals. I mean, I think they have a full, full schedule, and they have about 600 ranked men in the wheelchair division, about 200 ranked women, and then there's the quad division, which is a mixed division, there's only about 100 of them, and quad just means you have a third disability either in your arms or your trunk. Um, so they often have like the, the racket taped to their arm or something. And that's a whole other level, a whole other um, category. There we go. That's another example of me just having absolutely no clue that there was even that division. There's a lot of information out there that we don't know. I also like that Gordon is really positive about the growth, even though it's hard and there's still not enough coverage of wheelchair tennis, not enough prize money, not enough tournaments, not enough players, he says it's growing so quickly. And he's only 27, so he'll be around for a little while to see it grow even more. But it feels like his country does a little bit better than our country because at Wimbledon, I feel like they get a lot of coverage and they kind of have an increase in prize money. Well, the U.S. Open is a little bit behind. He mentions that. He talks about how Prize money at the US Open isn't quite the same at the level, which is a bit odd because we gave over $3 million to the singles champion and you're going to be giving like, what, tens of thousands of dollars to the wheelchair champion, like less than a able-bodied player makes in the first round, losing in the first round. This seems to be a, a long, long, long way to go. Um, 
And then also when I was at the U.S. Open, there was a reporter that was a wheelchair reporter trying to get to the U.S. Open. And the buses didn't have the, the, the elevator thing that comes down to help lift the chair up off the ground into the bus wasn't working in like three of the buses. So she was stuck there in the street in a hot 100 degree day waiting and waiting and waiting. And she got really impatient and really upset. And she's like, we're in America. Like, what's happening? And she's just trying to do her job the same as, like, we're trying to be a reporter. She's trying to be a reporter. She's going to miss the match. She's going to miss the interviews because the bus wasn't working. Like, it just seems like these problems are probably constant, like, with transporting wheelchairs and getting around and getting on buses and getting on planes. I'm like, oh, my God. I think you're 100% right, though. Like, being at the U.S. Open and not having a handicapped accessible um, bus available to them, that's, that's messed up, especially knowing that you guys have an event where you need to have that accessibility. And you have the resources. I think the U.S. Open has the resources to send out one of the buses or one of the vans that is taking wheelchair players around to come get her. I'm like, what? But I mean, I'm not in their position. I don't know how the USTA and the U.S. Open and all that work. I don't know how that day in particular, everything, what was happening. It was obviously a very busy day. I mean, respect everyone that works at the U.S. Open, obviously. Like, everyone's doing the best they can. It just seems like there's room for improvement. And I feel like that's the sense of this conversation with Gordon is like, there is so much room for improvement and it's it's challenging but also kind of exciting because you're like okay like we're gonna get where we need to get hopefully in the future right i totally agree he was meant to play in arthur ash stadium which is a big deal and a big move and the u.s open clearly gave him that chance and gave wheelchair tennis that chance to be on a grand stage but it got ruined because it was so hot the heat rule actually goes in effect for junior and wheelchair players when it's over a certain temperature which it was that day so he couldn't play in arthur ash stadium and they just kept like delaying and delaying and delaying and eventually it came to the night session which he got bumped out and the reason is because I think that their um, their hands are constantly on the wheels, right? And if the wheels are super hot, that's going to be an issue. So it's kind of a, a massive shame. But again, in the, in, the, in the concept of growth, it was a really good sign that wheelchair tennis was put on Arthur Ashe Stadium and was going to have that moment and will hopefully have it next year. That's another thing that I wouldn't even have thought of. Like, oh, the hands would get too hot from the wheels. Like, that is just something you don't even think about until you actually hear and you're like, wow, that makes perfectly good sensible sense it makes sense it's what i heard from somebody else not from him but it, it makes sense right like i think that's a perfectly logical thing but just a shame and he was disappointed but i mean in the end he still won the title so all is all is well that ends well and at least right now he's making a full-time living for himself even though people assume wheelchair athletes are not they got sponsors he's got uniqlo he's got funding from um, federations back home i mean it's it's legit and it's awesome and it's so fun to watch and i couldn't recommend watching wheelchair tennis live more like it's just honestly like life-changing to see what they can do well I'll tell you what it's it's pretty inspiring to hear you like feel and uh, really see how athletic these guys are like it, it just goes to show how much you appreciate the sport and wheelchair tennis is definitely a huge part of it and it's only going to get bigger I think I think it's only going to grow okay that's it for this episode of inside the tour I've been Nina Pantic I've been Irina Falcone. Thanks for listening this week, and please subscribe to the Tennis.com podcast to hear more. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.